My philosophy has not really changed too much. I focus on asset allocation first, where I allocate a percentage of my net worth to stocks, which is about 30%, a percentage to real estate, which is about 50%, percentage to private investments and alternative investments, which is about 15%, and the rest of bonds and more safe and alternative investments, which is about 15%, and the rest of bonds and more safe, uh, secure uh, investments, such as uh, savings, CDs, and municipal bonds, actually. I have a lot of municipal bonds to give me that risk-free or tax-free income. Now, um, at 45 in 2022, I've entered the decumulation phase, where I'm trying to spend more money more purposefully so that I don't die with too much. And I think this is one of the problems and issues that a lot of us who save and invest so aggressively for so long need to face. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 258 and the final one for this week as an update from a former millionaire. In fact, this week we have Sam. He appeared on episode number 132. At the time, his net worth was just around $3 million. We have a great discussion about finding purpose once you've hit several financial goals and what does the outlook look as you start to teach children and the next generation about work, money, and how to navigate all the ups and downs that we all experience in life and with our financial decisions, along with financial markets. Yesterday we had Michael. His net worth was 2.7 as an update. He initially appeared on episode 18. So if you're interested in that, go check that out. So without any further delay, let's get into the discussion with Sam. In the show, we've got a returning guest. We have the Financial Samurai. Financial Samurai, do you want to just give us a little bit of an update? I think we had you on the show a couple years ago now, pre-pandemic. What has changed? How has your net worth changed? Any philosophy changes in terms of how you're allocating, investing your money? I think you know back in the day, you started your blog basically around the 0809 crisis and how to navigate that. And here we are, you know, 2022, a few years later, kind of in a similar but different cycle in a way. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on again. Uh, it's been a journey as a parent with two young kids since the pandemic began. Man, props to all the parents out there trying to manage uh, work and loved ones and little kids. It's not been easy. Well, since we last spoke, um, my net worth fortunately has gone up. It's gone up about 40%, uh, you know, 15, 20% a year in 2020, 2021. 2022, you know, not a great year for the stock market, obviously. We're down, we've recovered half of our losses. So we're only down about 10% as of August 15, 2022. Uh, but how has my philosophy changed? My philosophy has not really changed too much. I focus on asset allocation first, where I allocate a percentage of my net worth to stocks, which is about 30%, a percentage to real estate, which is about 50%, percentage to private investments and alternative investments, which is about 15%, and the rest of bonds and more safe, uh, secure investments, such as uh, savings, CDs, and municipal bonds, actually. I have a lot of municipal bonds to give me that risk-free or tax-free income. So really, there's been a lot of crazy times, right? March 2020, we crashed by 35% in the stock market. 
Then we went to all-time highs quite shortly. But I've always just focused on asset allocation because it helps you get through the muck, the mud, you know, the bad times. You just focus on the percentages. Generally, things will turn out okay in the end. That's awesome. So your, your investment allocation, you're still sticking the course. I want to get into that, some of that a little bit, especially the alternative investments. I think those have become a little bit more popular you know, in the last couple of years. But I want to ask, as your net worth has grown and, and you've honed in on your investment strategy, has your spending changed? Have you had lifestyle creep? Or are you still the same guy that's been doing this for the last 10, 15, 20 years? You know, it's hard to change old habits. Um, ever since I started working in 1999 uh, on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs, I've been really frugal. I lived in a studio with a friend. So we just shared a room just to live like college students because we wanted to save money so we can get the hell out as soon as possible. My mission since 1999 has been to try to save and invest about 50% of my after-tax income or more so I could get out. So when I finally got out in 2012 at the age of 34, you know, I felt really free. I lost 80% of my income, active income. But I didn't feel that bad because I had so much freedom to do what I wanted. However, now um, at 45 in 2022, I've entered the decumulation phase where I'm trying to spend more money more purposefully so that I don't die with too much. And I think this is one of the problems and issues that a lot of us who save and invest so aggressively for so long need to face. So if we continue on our path and we continue to, to, say, to spend less than we earn, then we're going to die with too much. And that is such a waste of time and a waste of stress and effort during our younger days. So I'm being very intentional right now. I've calculated what my potential net worth will be 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. I've calculated my spending. I've calculated the overage. And I'm purposefully trying to spend that overage so that I don't die with too much. And the bear market, ironically, has helped me spend down that wealth because you know, I lost some money in the stock market. <laughs> I don't know if that counts, man. So what are you, what are, what are you spending on? What are, what are you increasing lifestyle? Or what are you purposefully doing that, that you weren't doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago before you built up kind of your, your, your wealth? Well, so one thing I did in June, 2020, right? This was two months after the lockdowns was buy another house. Cause I just bought a house in 2019. It was a fixer, uh, but I saw the potential and I was fixing it up. And I realized by early 2020 that, man, this remodeling is going to take longer than expected. And I had uh, my daughter in December 2019. So I decided to splurge up and buy a bigger house to take care of my family. I needed more space, more room. And, and this house weirdly came up in April 2020. And that was just one month into lockdowns. I was like, okay, well, you want to try to sell into lockdowns? I'm looking to buy a house. I'm going to take that leap of faith and splurge on a nicer house because who knows how long this pandemic will last. And I thought it was going to last three to six months, but obviously it's kind of still lingering. So that's one, spending up on a nicer house because I truly believe the best time to own the nicest house you can afford is when you have the most heartbeats at home. So you have your kids, your family, your pets because that way the cost is amortized across more people so it's better value and you're taking care of more people so it's better value once your children leave the house what are you going to do buy a mega mansion no you're probably going to 
keep your house because you know you like it and it's probably going to feel lonely if you upsize and you might even downsize. So that was number one, buying a nicer house to live in and enjoy. Two is spending more money on food because we still aren't traveling too much. You know, so instead of, uh, you know, a hamburger, maybe I'll get like a prime rib, 28 day, eight, 28 day dry age prime rib or something. And then finally, it's to spend more on vacations and travel. So those are the three items. So have you been eating out more then? Or have you just gotten better food that maybe you would get? Better food. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So like instead of like a tuna tuna sushi, maybe I'll get a a bluefin toro toro sashimi, you know, like the fatty belly sashimi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you got to like have baby steps really when it comes to spending more money. So the easiest way is to start with food. And we do a lot of delivery now to save time because we're so busy caring for our kids. So delivery, you know, do you want fries with that? Yes, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Delivery fees to save time and nicer quality of food. That's that's been like our main focus, especially since we've been at home so much. Yeah. So have you become, I guess let me ask it this way. Have, Have you also been a little bit more giving? You tip more? As a yes. result of all this and everything else, and obviously using delivery, you're probably giving tips and stuff there. Yes, so absolutely. So it feels great to order delivery, groceries and restaurant delivery, because one, you support the local restaurateurs and bars and the people who are side hustling to make money, right? It just feels good to support them, especially during the pandemic, and also tip them. Even if it's just like a couple bucks, right? You, you know, you're ordering like, a, I don't know, like a drink or something. You just tip them and it helps them keep busy, make money. And also, uh, definitely focused more on charitable uh, givings. Uh, one is this place called the Pomeroy Rehabilitation Center for the Disabled. Uh, did you know that the largest minority group in the world are people who have a disability of a varying degree. 15% of the world's population is disabled. And I think that's the most important minority group to fight for, to try to level the playing field. So I'm donating to those causes. And I'm also focused on foster care, especially uh, since I volunteered at a foster care home before having children. And now that I have children, I, I understand how important uh, supporting these people are. Hmm, interesting. So as you as you look out in the, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 year time horizon, are you do you envision any major shifts with any of your giving or any of your wealth building, you know, asset allocation, any of that stuff? Uh, I do. So one is to understand uh, what the estate tax threshold is per person. And that's 12.06 million per person. So if you die uh, with over 12.06 million per person, then you got to pay about a 40% death tax on that. And so if you die with less than that, you're fine. You're not going to get taxed again. So for us, uh, we have decided to give away everything above the estate tax threshold at the very least. Otherwise, you know, why pay 40% to the government, right? Why not give that money while you're still living and after you're dead, but hopefully more while you're living to good causes that you care about. So that's something that anybody who's fortunate enough to build a network greater than the estate tax threshold should think about and calculate. Give as much as possible above that threshold to be more efficient and to help people now. Are you teaching your kids anything specific or setting up trust for them or, or trying to you know get them in, in the frame of mind that, that you would like them in or, or anything like that? Uh, absolutely. So one of the great things about being a stay-at-home dad and a dad who writes is that I'm around them a lot, right? And so instead of just teaching them about the fundamentals of work ethic, money, saving, investing, I mean, my son's only five and a half, let's put this in perspective. 
But I show them what it means to write, to work. I take him to visit the rental properties, to pull the weeds. We pull the weeds a lot. I take him um, to the rental properties to teach him how to paint, paint the lines on the trim and the walls, and to show him that dad is actually doing the work and not just telling and what to do. My long-term goal is to keep Financial Samurai, a personal finance site I started in 2009, running for the next 20 years so that I can teach them, my son and daughter, everything I know about communication, uh, finance, marketing, PR, anything so that they have the tools necessary to get a job if they want to. And if they can't get that job, then they can always come back to Financial Samurai. So it's like a career insurance policy keeping uh, Financial Samurai going. <laughs> I like that. That's cool. Well, let, let's shift gears here a little bit. You just wrote a book. Do you want to give our listeners a little bit uh, kind of history and how this all came about and, and obviously where to buy it? And then we'll dive into a little bit more of the details about it. Sure. The book is called Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom. It's out everywhere. You can go check out out the details on financialsamurai.com forward slash btnt for buy this not that and yeah i started writing the book in the beginning of 2020 uh, because an editor at portfolio penguin random house approached me and said hey would you like to write a book and the funny thing is 10 years ago i tried to get a literary agent and i couldn't even do that so I decided to self-publish my book on how to negotiate a severance and be free. And I thought to myself, well, I don't want to really write a book because I'm already too busy and there's this pandemic. But then I said, I probably would regret it if I don't write the book. And I also wanted to do something productive so that 10, 20, 30 years from now, when my kids or hopefully my grandkids ask, you know, what were you doing during the pandemic? I could say I wrote a book to help people achieve financial independence sooner rather than later and tackle some of life's biggest dilemmas. So the book is not just about you know, accumulating wealth, how to accumulate wealth, how to invest. Um, it's also about tackling these problems or these issues that we all face or many of us face, you know, such as, you know, besides, oh, should I invest in real estate or stocks or should I relocate to this small city to save money uh, or go to a big city that costs a lot to make more money for my career? I'm also talking about stuff like whether we should marry for love or money, uh, whether we should have children sooner or later whether we should go to public school or private school, how should we give? All these things that come up, I try to introduce in my book and go deep into telling people what I think the right method is using my 70-30 decision-making framework. And that framework states that if you believe with a 70% probability or greater you're going to make the right choice, go for it while having the humility at and understanding, knowing that 30% of the time you're going to get it wrong, but so long as you don't die, so long as there's nothing catastrophic that happens, you're going to be able to learn from your mistakes and then make better decisions going forward. So the idea is to help readers think in probabilities, not absolutes, to take advantage of more opportunity. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of framework and concept, right, to, to make decisions based on probability versus this versus that, right? And I think, you know, the, the book illustrates that. And obviously, you've, you've been writing for a long time on some of these things. How does one, you know, let's just walk through a few examples. How does somebody, you know, apply that, for example, to, you know, let's just say private school or public school, because I'm dealing with that right now with my, my children. They're not you know, that age yet, but they're going to be soon. And it's something right. my wife and I've been talking about a lot. So here's an example for me. How, how would I go about doing that specifically for myself? Okay. Well, yeah. One of the chapters in buy this, not that is 
to invest in your education. I do believe education is what will set us free. It's the most powerful asset we have because it teaches us how to make better decisions and then to live our lives the way we want. The issue with education is this. Tuition is going up even faster than inflation. And inflation is already high, right? So at the rate it's going, you know, it's going to be unaffordable to so many people. But at the same time, parents love our children more than anything in the world. So prices kind of demand inelastic. We're, a, we're, we're willing to spend any amount of money uh, for our children's well-being and for their education. And colleges know that. They know that. And so that's why they continue to raise their prices out of reach to so many people. And given that they don't have to guarantee their graduates jobs, it's kind of like a racket, to be honest, because everything online can be learned for free, right? You can listen to this podcast, you can read Buy This Not That for less than 20 bucks, and you'll gain a thousand times more knowledge uh, than the cost of the book. Yet education still is going up. Tuition is so expensive. So the way to think about it is in my book, I present an analysis on how much you should spend on education and how much you should earn to be okay to pay for private school. Because public school and private school, there's not that much difference. You're learning from the same textbooks. You learn roughly the same. And the income difference over a lifetime, one research study said it's only about $80,000 for your lifetime. Is that a lot? Is that significant when you're going to spend, let's say, $70,000 a year in private college tuition? I don't think so. But I'm also biased because I went to public high school, public college, and public school for my business degree. So a quick quick uh, shortcut is don't send your kid to private school unless you make over seven times the annual net tuition. So in other words, after let's say you get a grant scholarship, uh, the school costs $10,000, then you can send your kid to private school if you make at least 70000 per kid. And so if you have three kids and they all have a net cost of 10000 a year, then you got to make at least 210,000. Because the idea is, don't forget to put on your oxygen mask first. You need to still be saving and investing for your future, for your financial well-being and retirement. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, at least lately, you've seen all these headlines of people investing you know, in their children's education paid for college or, or, or taking out loans for that versus saving for their own retirement. And then it's kind of back to the cycle of, well, I paid for their kid, their school. So now my kids need to take care of me. And, you know, in some <laughs> cases it gets backwards a little bit, right? Well, that's interesting. Uh, you think about it, you say it that way, because it's so important for parents to explain cost of college, cost of private schools, if they want to go to private grade school and to explain how much we have to work, how much we have to save how it's, we're paying in after-tax dollars. Uh, so the more they appreciate it, the more they're not going to take their education for granted. And you know, your children might think, well, you know what? Instead of spending $70,000 to go to Boston University, not, maybe we go to the state school that costs twenty twenty five thousand, 25000 which is still a lot. But you know, with that difference, hey, maybe uh, mom and dad, we can save and invest that difference. And maybe uh, I can inherit that or half of that when I graduate, especially if I get a job. So it's really having these honest, open discussions so that our kids don't take our work, our money for granted and to get them working, working sooner so they can save and invest on their own and appreciate the value of a dollar. One thing that, that you mentioned in here and I have a little section on is is the happiness equation. Will you just dive into that a little bit and, and, and provide some color on that for our listeners? Yeah. So happiness equals reality minus expectations. The higher your expectations. So let's say you go to Harvard, right? You know, it's only a 5% acceptance rate. 
you're expected to do great things. But let's say you graduate from Harvard and you just get a job like everybody else who went to a non-Harvard school. Probably going to be a little bit disappointed. And if you graduated from Harvard and don't have a job, you're going to be very, very disappointed, right? So it's really reality minus expectations. You need to understand reality and the, the way the world is. It's brutally competitive. Every single job you get is like winning the lottery because many other people were being for that job. Any kind of investment gains is like winning the lottery too because as we know, not everything goes up and to the right. And so we have to be appreciative and we also have to manage our expectations, understand ourselves and not suffer from Dunning-Kruger, which is this uh, uh, effect where you think you're better than reality, right? You got to be congruent with the reality and um, your thoughts. And so I personally have tried to manage my expectations, whether it's, you know, publishing by this, not that. I just tell myself, look, I, just to get through a two-year process of writing the book and editing it is a success unto itself. Don't have expectations for trying to make the Wall Street Journal bestseller list or whatever. If it happens, it happens. Great. Just be happy with the effort that you put in day in and day out because that's the most important thing. So manage expectations to manage your happiness. I think that's awesome. So where can people get a copy of this book? Where can they order it? Where can they find it? Uh, so buy this, not that. You can get it on Amazon. It's uh, That's probably the easiest place and it's also the cheapest place to buy it. Uh, you can go to financialsamurai.com forward slash BTNT. I think it's the best personal finance book you'll pick up because I read 20 other personal finance books before writing this book to try to understand what works, what doesn't. And what I realized is the books that do well are actually, they just scratch the surface. Interestingly enough, they just try to make you feel good so that you feel like you're doing something. But by this, not that goes deep. It teaches you how, how to build that wealth in a risk appropriate manner. It teaches you how to think and what to decide on and help you argue your beliefs with your friends and family. So I hope I hope you do pick up the book and uh, check it out because I really think it's going to help you make better decisions going forward. That's awesome. So let's shift gears here a little bit. What's what's next for you? What does the next couple years look like? Obviously, you're going to continue writing on, on financialsamurai.com. This book's out. Are you going to write another book? What's kind of the mindset right now for you? You know, after two and a half years of writing the book, writing on Financial Samurai, being a stay-at-home parent to two young children. I am so exhausted. I am so damn tired. So I think, you know, over the next three months, I'm going to really try to unwind. I'm going to try to decumulate, you know, spend more on experiences, uh, you know, travel more just to really kind of heal, heal the mind, heal the body. Because a lot goes into, um, you know, your mind. I really think our mental health get beat up uh, during this time period. And so I'm trying to heal and gear up for 2023. I know that uh, my publisher, Portfolio Penguin, wants me to write another book. And so that is something that I'll deliberate. But before that, I really want to make Buy This, Not That one of those classic personal finance books that are unique and different than any other book out there. So I think that's going to be my goal. And I think I need to spend more time with uh, my friends and my wife. You know, the problem with uh, work or trying to do something really hard is that you sacrifice your relationship with the people that you care about most. And it's such a balance. This is why I've woken up by 6 a.m. for like the past 13 years to write on Financial Samurai because I'm trying to write before my wife and now my kids wake up. But it's really hard uh, to get everything done in a couple hours, right? So it's really to spend more time healing the mind and to 
really nurture those relationships that I might have neglected over the past two years. What are practices that you're going to do to, to, to do that? Heal the mind, work on those relationships. Is there anything specific that you do personally for that? Yeah, one is to set aside date night every single week. We didn't do that for like two years. That's pretty terrible. But more date nights uh, with the wife. That's so important. Understanding that we have different strengths and to understand that not everything is 50-50 and that we do the best that we, that we can uh, at the moment. Um, so that's one. Two is to practice breathing exercises. We can all do it, but I think it's underrated. I think one of the best breathing exercises is like a five, six, seven route where you inhale for five seconds, you hold your breath for six seconds, and then you try to exhale out for seven seconds. And then you repeat that process over a one or two minute time period. This should help calm the nerves, make you feel more at peace, and overall help you with uh, the where you are at the moment. And then anything else, I think just exercise and play more tennis and softball. Those are my favorite activities. And also writing. Writing is really cathartic. So if anybody you know, is struggling during this pandemic, you know, maybe instead of like boozing it up or smoking or whatever, try to journal your thoughts, write, because it, it, it forces you to be very intentional with what you're thinking. It also forces you to review your logic. And so you will discover things about yourself through your writing that you really wouldn't have discovered otherwise if you weren't as intentional. I was just about to ask about the tennis, man. So you still playing tennis then? Yeah, we, nice. uh, I, was, I was ranked... Uh, 5-0, which is in USTA 5-0, there's like 1% who are ranked in the 5-0, but I was a terrible 5-0. I was like the worst 5-0 level tennis player you can imagine. But I was stuck in purgatory for five years battling these 26-year-olds who just played college tennis. And finally in 2022, I was able to self-rate down to 4-5. And then finally, <laughs> I had a winning record. Finally, I had some fun instead of just getting beat up by all these young guns. And so I, I played 23 matches at 4-5 and our team my club team that went 0-7 last year I wasn't on the team we won the city championship this year at 4-5 so it was like a great turnaround nice that's awesome man yeah it was so fun I was gonna so say I'll have, to, I'll have to get out there and play it except for I'm not a 4-5 so you maybe you'll be whooping up on me <laughs> Well, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a secret. It's called uh, business development tennis, just like business development golf, where uh, you might not be the same level as me, but I can play down to your level to make things better it's and true. make you happier. And then, you know, business develops that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you, man. I partake in both of those activities. Tennis when tennis is a little little tougher, right? Because you, you, you got the other, you know, golf. It's like, ah, if you hit a shot off on the in the woods, man, that's your, you can go chase your own ball, you know? Exactly. Tennis. <laughs> That is, you got to be kind of similar level or the better player has to be really patient. Yeah. Uh, and, and has to have the skill not to let the other, the, the inferior player, player feel bad about themselves. Right? It's really a skill. And this is about, um, yeah, it's, it's a business skill. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's, it's crazy how, you know, these things that I just barely touched when I was a kid, got more into in high school, college, mainly tennis and then golf later in life or you know because I, I played other sports but these two specifically now that i you know with business and everything else and you yeah. know the social aspects with them and all the lessons that you learn and I'm, I'm hoping my kids will pick them up a little earlier than i did that's for sure yeah that'd be fun i mean there really is a skill to being a sandbagger in the sense that you don't <laughs> want to be if you're known as a sandbagger, then you're not doing it right, right? You, you want to actually be known not that good, but who can step it up and surprise people on the upside. But also people just think you're not that good, too. <laughs> <laughs> 
listening to listen to him man going from 5-0 to 4-5 which i guess if, if you're not aware of kind of how tennis rating works he basically was almost pro if you want to put it that way in that nah, context it's nah, <laughs> not that but it was pretty good at 5-0 is tough it's like you you would pay to watch some good 5-0s play play tennis Maybe you paid him like a couple bucks, you know. But yep, yep. Yeah, it's just it's about you know positioning yourself. It's kind of like life; like you got to position yourself in the right battles. Otherwise, you're always going to be miserable. And the, the, again, this is about expectations, right? If you're a five zero, you're expected to beat all the four fives, and you, you know you're expected to be really good. But at four five, you're still okay, but you're not expected to be that great. And so you can win more, and then it's like ah, you know, the expectations are lower, and it feels better. You're you're in the right right game yeah that's awesome so to, to wrap up here where can uh people find you get in touch with you and then obviously we talked about where to get the book but uh where can people find you and get in touch with you you can just go to financialsamurai.com i read all the comments from all 2500 plus articles that have been written since 2009 it's just if you leave a comment, I'll see it. And if you have a question, just leave a comment. That's probably the best. And if you ever have a financial question or you're just curious, type in your question and then add financial samurai to it. I'm pretty certain with 95% probability, I will have addressed your dilemma in one of my blog posts. And definitely go buy, buy this, not that. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. I didn't expect it, but it happened. So I, now I feel great and I can go buy myself a, a nice prime rib dinner uh, maybe later tonight. <laughs> that's awesome once again that's financial samurai thanks for coming on the show today thanks so much for having me it's great to connect every uh two years let's do that Cheers. <laughs> awesome thanks man thanks for listening to the millionaires unveiled podcast with clark sheffield and chase mantinson for more stories investment opportunities and information check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.